Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. I hope uh, you're doing well. Uh, I want to I want to alert you to a couple of things because it's coming up in in the, in the material as we study Nehemiah together. First is this map, page seven or eight, whichever fits this description. The top, and the reason I'm referring to this is usually not understood very well, but you are now going to be those who really understand this. But as you know, and I want to remind you, because last year, last week, excuse me, the first little half of our class, I kind of went through the history of Israel real quickly to show where we are in the book of Nehemiah. This is the period where the exiles are coming back from Babylon, now under the Persian Empire. And so Nehemiah, who is the author and really the, the main figure of this book, is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Do you remember his name? Artaxerxes, mentioned in the Bible quite a few times. But he also would become governor, and he would become governor of this province. And this is what I want you to look at. It is called Yehud, Y-E-H-U-D. That is a derivation of Judea. But now it's called Yehu. Now, if you take a look at that, again, if, if hopefully you have it, you can see it is much, much smaller than what had been Judea before Nebuchadnezzar conquered it in 586 B.C. Now, the reason I mention that is because I want you to notice something else. Right below Yehud is Idumea. Do you see that? Okay, three of you see it. Yeah. The rest of you, okay, the rest of you see it. Idumea. Idumea is, again, that's a Hebrew derivation. When the Babylonians conquered the province of Judah and took most of the Jews into captivity in Babylon, the Edomites moved into southern Judah and took it all. Now, there was one very important family that was a part of that resettling of the southern part of Judea, and their son would become a very, very famous person. Do you know who that is? Well, but this, but this is a guy who will become very prominent, an individual. It's Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an Idumean. And his family, two generations earlier, had settled in this area. And so he is not a Jew. He's an Idumean. But the Roman Empire will make him king of the Jews. But this, you should know this. And since you're in my class, you're going to know it. No, but I mean, it's just, it, makes, it makes things come alive for you when you read them in the Bible. Because you read that Herod's an Edomian. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, now you know what that means. But it's just poor. So uh, Yehud, which is the name of this area, is a very small sub-province of the larger province of the Persian Empire called Beyond the River. And you're going to see that in chapter 1. Because I just, it's important, I think it is, at least I hope you would agree, that as you study the Bible, you are familiar with what these geographical place names, what they mean. Because the Bible is recording valid, verifiable history for us. It isn't making this stuff up. And for me, as a Christian, and as a Christian leader, and a Christian teacher, it is very important for me to be able to defend the reliability of God's Word. And the reliability of God's Word extends not just to what Jesus says, and we put it in red letters in our Bibles. Every historical detail, every geographical detail, every political detail that is referred is valid history. So that's why I, I think it's important. That's why in these notes I give you maps like this. The other thing I want you to note is the bottom half of this page. There is, it's, it's very much just the outline, but it gives you the outline of the Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, at the time of Nehemiah. It's much, much smaller than it had been, uh, for example, when um, like King David or more, more particularly Solomon or even the, the kings of Judah like Josiah and Hezekiah and so on. And the reason I say that is because, again, as we move into the second chapter, Nehemiah is going to mention several gates. Because he is rebuilding the wall, or that's his test, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's vulnerable. It is subject to attack because the temple has been rebuilt. Worship and sacrifices and high priesthood has been restored. But the city itself was vulnerable. And as you're going to be seeing as we get a little bit into the study, there are a number of groups that do not want the Jews to succeed in rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. 
And they are going to do everything they can to thwart that. And here again is this, this unique, very important leader of Nehemiah. He's got multiple things he has to deal with. That's why when you study the book of Nehemiah, one of the applications of it is you learn a lot about leadership. You learn a lot about godly, wise, strategic thinking leaders. And that's Nehemiah. Dependent on God? Absolutely. Praying to God? Constantly? Absolutely. But he's a strategic thinker. He has a clear plan, and he's going to work that plan, and God is going to protect him. And they're going to do something that absolutely blew every water away in the eastern Mediterranean. In 52 days, they rebuild Jerusalem. That's absolutely astonishing. Are you with me? Do you understand why I addressed uh, your attention to those little maps? So if I say Yehud, you will know what that means. It's the province that he is going to administer as the governor. Much, much, much smaller than Judah. Much smaller. The most important thing is Jerusalem, and that's what he's going to focus on. All right, Nehemiah 1. We covered the first three verses where Nehemiah is introduced to us. He hears a report from his brother that the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. They had been destroyed and torn down by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Much of the city had been burned. So this is now, I hope you remember, this is 444 B.C. So this is decades and decades and decades later. Jerusalem remains vulnerable. And with the temple rebuilt, which is what the book of Ezra is all about, with the temple rebuilt, now the city... The temple is vulnerable. So Nehemiah, it says in verse 4, begins to weep, mourn, sits down, fasts, and prays. I'm summarizing what happens. I want you to notice again at the end of verse 4, the God of heaven, before the God of heaven. That is a phrase that appears throughout the Old Testament. When Jewish people are in a foreign territory or under foreign domination. So they refer to the Lord as the God of heaven. But he is the superior, supreme, one and only God. So that's an important title that is referring to him in contrast to all the other gods that are false gods. Now he prays, and we talked about this last week. If you recall when we were discussing at the end of our study in the book of Colossians, a way in which you can think about your prayers are adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Remember that? That's exactly what Nehemiah does here. And I'm not going to read all this again, but verse 5 is his adoration of God. And he uses titles and acts of God where he praises him. I want you to notice particularly in the middle of verse 5 the word covenant. He is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Now, for those of you that were here, this is a quiz on whether you were paying attention. What's the Hebrew word for steadfast love? Chesed. Good. Chesed. Ed gets a star. As a matter of fact, he gets 100% for the next seven classes. Yeah. I, I'm in, uh, I go back over some stuff that we've done in the past. I'm in Genesis, oh. chapter 24. Oh, yeah. Okay. So That's, boy, I'll tell you, I'm really encouraged. That's great. One question. Covenant. What covenant is he referring to here? The Abrahamic covenant. God promised the Jewish people, he promised Abraham, really, land, seed, and blessing. And so, I mean, this is important, and this is a, this is a major characteristic of God. He is covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And that's what Nehemiah is just referring to. This is my God. He keeps covenant. And verse 6 begins a confession. It continues. He's confessing the sins of the people of Israel, and he's confessing his own personal sins, the end of verse 6. That's very similar to what Daniel does in chapter 9, similar to what Ezra does in chapter 7 of his book. So he's now, he's praying. The very first thing he does is pray. And in verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, statutes, rules that you commanded your servant Moses. That's where we stopped. So the second part of his prayer deals with another covenant, the Mosaic covenant. 
We have not obeyed. We have not lived in loving obedience under that covenant. So then verse 8, he begins the petition. And it's, it's an interesting way, and you see this among a number of Old Testament characters as they pray. Remember. Good, you're looking up, you're thinking, you're paying attention. That's an interesting way to begin a petition to almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, remember. The inference you could draw is, well, God's forgotten something. And I have to remind him. Is that the right way to interpret that? It seems it's a prayer for, it begins with a prayer for mercy. He, he knows he remembers it, but he's asking him to bring it forward. Okay. Is that something to do with the covenant that God promised that if they obey him, he will bless them, but if they sin, that he will... Um, Discipline, Discipline, send them into exile. At the same time, if you repent, I will mm-hmm. you know, bring you back. So mm-hmm. it's just not not making God remember something, but just pointing out that He is faithful. Okay. So when He says, "Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful.'" I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Moses did this all the time. Remember, God, what you promised. So, in a sense, what Nehemiah is doing is not saying, well, God, you've forgotten, so I'm going to remind you. No, It's remember, it's God, here is what you said. I heard what you said. I remember what you said. I understand what you said. And I'm going to review what you said. And what what Nehemiah does here is summarizes Deuteronomy 28, where where Israel is standing on the two mountains. One's on Mount Ebal, one's on Mount Gerizim. And they review covenant curses, covenant curses, covenant curses and blessings. If you do this, 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 I will bless you. If you do this, 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 I will send you, I will curse you, I will discipline you. Ultimately, I will send you into exile. Nehemiah is reviewing that covenant language. Because remember, I'm going to say two sentences here that are foundational in understanding the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. It is binding on God and God alone. Amen. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. And it's bilateral. It's conditional. The blessings of the Mosaic Covenant are conditional in their obedience. And it's bilateral. It's between, it's between the children of Israel and God, Yahweh. And God makes it very clear. So, and I'm going to make another sentence. It's very important to further understand the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, how they're related. God will discipline his people, even to the extent of sending them into exile, according to the tenets of the Mosaic covenant. But he will bring them back to their land based on the Abrahamic covenant. Does that sentence, with you know, it's a compound sentence, two parts to it. God will discipline his people Israel, even to the extent of sending them into exile, based on the Mosaic Covenant. But he will bring them back to their land, always, 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 based on the Abrahamic Covenant. That's your thought paper for January the 8th. I'm going to give you a lot of time to do that. I want you to take those two statements and choose five texts from the Bible to prove each. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Boy, you'd have to dig for that, but it would be great to see you do that, but I know you won't do it. But I like to pretend that I'm still in a classroom and 
pretend that I have some kind of authority over your life, which I don't. All right. Do you understand any questions there? Uh, Joel, please. Is this, I mean, when you brought that up, remember, so forth, is that kind of like if we use scripture in our prayers? I mean, God obviously knows his word, but us saying it. It's absolutely, absolutely wonderful parallel, wonderful application for our lives. Remember, Lord, you said, whatever it is, I'm asking you to do that. Remember, Lord, you said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Lord, I'm really hanging on to that right now. Remember, Lord, you said that you would never allow me to be tempted above that which I'm able. Lord, I'm really hanging on to that promise right now. I've actually prayed that. Perhaps you have too. So that's it's that kind of, of uh, what's the right word, framework for our praying. To quote something God has said, Lord, I'm really depending on that. Remember, Lord, this is what you said. That's why we are where we are right now. And so, and I thank you for uh, bringing that up, Joel. That's a great application in our lives of, of reviewing a promise God made in Scripture. Review something God said in Scripture and say, Lord, I really, I'm really depending on you right now to carry that out. I need you. I thought of Joe, lost his dad a couple of weeks ago, and I prayed for him using 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 times the word comfort. Lord, be a source of comfort to Joe and his family. Because the loss of a dad, regardless, is hard. But the comfort of God is what's real. Remember that, God. Take care of Joe and his family. This, that kind of praying, you're praying scripture, and you're asking God to fulfill a promise he's made. Isn't that kind of a wonderful way to pray? Amen. Because, I mean, number one, you believe what God said. Number two, you trust in what God said. Number three, you're relying and depending on what God said. Yes. Which is kind of what fellowship and koinonia and being in the family of God is all about. Good. The silence means you're thinking and reflecting, which is really good. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people. I cannot tell you. I, I should have done that. I, I didn't. How many times Moses said that to God? These are your people, God. God doesn't know that? Of course he does. Whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What is he referring to there? Egypt. Say it again. Egypt. Out of Egypt. Redeemed in Hebrew and in Greek. Redeem means to buy, to purchase. So God redeemed them from Egypt in slavery for 430 years by his great power and strong hand. Give me some examples of that in the Exodus. Yeah, the plague, the, the ten plagues. I mean, all the things he did. Then the parting of the Red Sea. And that little phrase, by your strong hand, I mean, God doesn't have a hand. He's spirit. So it's, are you ready for this great word? It's a great word. That's an anthropomorphism. Isn't that a great word? <laughs> but you're, you're assigning to God a human quality or a human characteristic. But every one of you reads it. You know what that means. Strong hand. Strong hand is a metaphor for power, a metaphor for strength. Did God exhibit that in the Exodus? Oh, my goodness. He made war on the Egyptian worldview in those ten plagues. He dismantled that worldview. He showed the silliness and stupidity of that worldview. And then he capped it off by purposely leading the children of Israel. He didn't have to do this, but he brought them down to the edge of the Red Sea. They could have gone around and headed down to Arabia. But he wanted them to cross the Red Sea at the very upper tip not because they needed to, but he said, I'm going to take you through this to demonstrate what? My power yes, and my strong hand, and I am going to destroy the Egyptian army with their chariots. Amen. To demonstrate one final time, I am the supreme God. And so he's re he, now back to Nehemiah, is reviewing this. Why are they your people? Because you redeemed them. 
You chose them through Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. You redeemed them out of slavery to, in Egypt. They are your people. And so, I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's one of the more magnificent prayers of the Bible because what Nehemiah is doing is reviewing the covenant relationship God has with the children of Israel. Got it? All right. Now the end of the chapter. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And in the sight of this man, what man? King Artaxerxes. But I go back to the phrase, I'm reading from the ESV translation. I'm pretty sure it's similar in all of yours. Who delight to fear your name. Let's take that apart. Why, um, why did he put it that way? To fear your let's first of all deal with your name. To fear your name. Why put it that way? Okay. But why not say to fear you, to fear God? Any any thoughts? I mean, it's we, this is part of Bible study. That's a curious phrase. Can you say, can you say oh Lord, and so refer back to, to the Lord? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. But why not just say, delight to fear you, God, to fear your name? Well, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. That might be part of it, but I think there's something more going on. I'm just trying to get you to think. I know this is hard, and don't worry about it. I want you to feel terribly guilty that you can't figure this out. No, I don't. This, but this is Bible study. This is this isn't. This isn't trying to, what does this passage mean to you? It's why does he do it this way? And I think we have some clues in other parts of the Bible. Because when you read Solomon building the temple, it speaks over and over again where your name dwells. It doesn't say where you dwell. Because God doesn't dwell in a place, right? right? Two of you said right. Right? God is omnipresent. He is not confined to a geographical place. So it's. I just this is really intriguing because I think this helps us to understand why Nehemiah is praying this way, because he's going to go to Jerusalem where the temple is, and the temple. When you go back and read it, is the place where your name dwells. What name? Yahweh Elohim I'm giving you the Hebrew but you ought to know those they're pretty familiar Yahweh Elohim this is the great I am this is the creator this is the term of, this is the name of God that's used in Genesis 1 this is the name of God used in Genesis 2 this is the name that God revealed when he was talking to Moses in Exodus 3.14 this, the name of God, who he is, not his person, but who he is, that temple is to reflect who God is, a God of glory, a God of power, a God of majesty. And so Nehemiah is praying, it's praying this way, to the servants who delight to fear your name, Yahweh, Elohim, the great I Am, the only self-sufficient Self-existent being in the universe, I am. And Elohim, the, the majestic, Elohim is a, is a title of majesty, the majestic, almighty creator God. Because the temple has been rebuilt. That represents your name. 
It represents the unique God of Israel, the one true only God. And we represent you, God. Amen. We represent you. Yes. We have a unique covenant relationship with you as your people, the children of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel when he wrestled with God in Genesis 3.32. We represent him now. And so Nehemiah is piling all this covenant language into his prayer. And, and do it. We, we, we delight to fear your name, all you represent, everything your names represent. And your temple is to represent that. The glory and majesty and power of Almighty God, the one true and only God, the self-existent, self-sufficient, great I am, creator, God of the universe. I'm trying to stretch that out. That's all that that means. But let's go back to the, the infinitive, to fear. To fear. Fear is a worship word in the Bible. Solomon says in both Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, it's in the Psalms several times, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Or you could turn it around, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It appears both ways in scriptures. So let's unpack that. Let's do a word study together now. Fear your name. How should we understand that? Even going to statements of Solomon, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's unpack that. What does that mean, to fear God? Does it involve, oh, I cower in fear of his presence? Yes. I mean, goodness, he is powerful. <laughs> But it's not only that, because of the term, it really, if you, if you get a, uh, an exegetical dictionary, I have a couple of those in my office, but if you get, and you look up in some of the figures, in some of them it's like 25 pages, page after page after page, discussing and describing and trying to unpack all that the Bible says about fearing God. It's a complex word. But it involves a dimension of, I am afraid of God because of his power. But more normally, for the believer, it's a reverential awe and adoration for who he is. I one time had a young man um, say to me, we were, it was in a group, and we were studying this a number of years ago, but we were studying uh, a passage in, in Paul's writings, and uh, he was a fairly new Christian, and he said this to the group. I was leading it, but he said it to the group. You know, I'm really afraid of God. And i got to tell you, honestly, I was taken back by that. I was thinking, okay, now, how am I going to respond to this? It was a fairly good-sized group of young men. And do I let that go? Do I just brush that aside? I'm afraid of God. Are you afraid of God? Okay. I mean, it's... He meant, I... Like a little child, I'm scared of God. That's what he was saying. And so we talked a little bit about that. None of the other guys responded. And automatically, there's just... Oh, it's almost some confusion among the... How do we really think about that? Fear of the Lord. I'm afraid of God. And I said, okay, let's just, let's talk about this from kind of a big, mega, 100,000 foot view of things. Um, before you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what was your relationship to God? Well, I mean, they, you know, bannered that around for a little bit, but everybody kind of reached a consensus for, I only leg one for a couple of minutes, but the relationship was really the judge of the universe condemned sinner. That's my relationship. Because Jesus says in John 3, verse 17, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. I came into the world to save the world. It already stands condemned. Jesus' message isn't a message of condemnation. The gospel isn't a message of condemnation. The gospel is a message of hope. It's another way to live. So anyway, 
So, and it kind of, yeah, that's that relationship. I'm a condemned sinner. Okay, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now what's your relationship? Heavenly Father to child. That, that's the relationship. We're adopted, Galatians 4, Romans 8, we're adopted into the family of God. He's now our Heavenly Father. If you've never read a book, get this book as a gift, Christmas present for yourself, or buy it, give it to your wife, and have her give it to you for Christmas. <laughs> J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. It is one of the best books. I look through it every year. It's one of the best books to remind us of who God is. And he has a chapter on God the Father. And right at the beginning, I'm not sure if it is in the very first sentence of the, of the chapter, he says, the greatest privilege of the believer is to call God Father. Amen. He's your Amen. Father. He's your Heavenly Father. And so that's a very different relationship. And therefore, fearing him takes on a very different nuance, doesn't it? Am I scared of God? But he's my Heavenly Father. He has my best interests at heart. He loves me. He takes care of me. So my fear now widens. Yes, there is a sense in which his power, which is unbelievably powerful, he created everything out of nothing. But now you're the object of his love, the object of his care. Jesus in Mark 14 calls God Abba. Paul says in Galatians and Romans we can call God Abba, which is quite remarkable, really. So now it's intimacy. A relationship, and so that fear now turns into an adoration, a reverence, an awe. And that's how Israel was to look at their God. Yes, in the sense that I am a little scared of him because of his power, but he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and he loves us, he chose us. Our fear is also adoration and reverence and awe. And that's what Nehemiah is saying here. We delight to fear. Because delight to fear is an oxymoron. That doesn't fit if you're defining fear as just scared of. We delight to be in adoration and awe of your name because the temple just up there on top of that mount that Zerubbabel and Ezra rebuilt is where your name dwells. It's the shining, it's the shining example of who the one true only God is. This is his temple. But he doesn't dwell there. Marduk dwells in the temple in Babylon. Chemosh dwells in the temple in Mo, in Mo, among the Moabites. Dagon uh, dwells in the temple that the Philistines built. But Yahweh doesn't dwell in that temple. It's a manifestation of his glory, but he doesn't dwell there. Where did, Isaiah says, where does he dwell? In the heavens. And so just keep all that straight, because this is an incredible... And it, it causes you and me to say, or it, I want it to cause you and me to say, do I fear God? Yes. Am I afraid of God? If by afraid you mean scared, not any longer. He's my heavenly father. I have the privilege of calling him Abba. I have an intimacy with him that is unknown a muslim has you talk like that a muslim has absolutely no idea what you're talking about in their relationship with Allah. and so when nehemiah says this this he he's built all of this to now the main petition give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man i am going in to talk to the king who could snuff me out if he doesn't like what I'm going to ask him. Lord, I'm depending on you. And then he tells us his profession. I was cupbearer to the king. And I, you all know what that means. It was, uh, it, but it actually was a very, uh, a very significant position. It wasn't only he tasted the wine so to the king, before the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned or something. But it also, it had emerged and was very much a part of the tr a trusted, dependable servant of the king. 
He just didn't, you know, well, you look like a nice guy. You're my cupbearer. I mean, it was, they vetted these people. They spent a lot of time. So he's a trusted, this is, Nehemiah is, a trusted, worthy servant of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, it was not in, we have records of this. The Chronicles of the Persian Kings, we found that. It's really quite a wonderful thing to read. But they really trusted their, their cupbearers. They would, they would talk, they would seek their advice and seek their counsel. So we can only infer that the relationship of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah was not just a superficial, shallow one. There was some depth in this relationship. And so Nehemiah prayed all of this. So now he's about to talk to King Artaxerxes. who a number of years earlier, it's recorded for us in Ezra 4, had shut down the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. This is the same king who had turned hostile to what the children of Israel and Judah were doing because he believed the lies of some of his advisors. Those people are plotting rebellion against you. So this is the context in which Nehemiah is going to go in to talk to King Artaxerxes. You with me? This is, I don't think there's anything comparable to what you and I could do in terms of, of our, even going into the President of the United States. This, this isn't the same kind of a relationship. And so you see something that becomes a very, very important premise of leadership. Before you talk to men, Talk to God. That's a pretty important premise for life. Before you talk to people, talk to God. You're dealing with a difficult situation at work, or your boss, or colleague, or whatever. I mean, just so many different scenarios. Nehemiah, before he talked to the king, he talked to God. And all great examples in Scripture. That's the pattern you see. Let's make a resolution for 2020. My priority in 2020 is to spend more time talking to my Heavenly Father. Amen. Okay, in the middle of June, I'm going to ask you, how's that going? No, I, I won't. I won't do that. I won't do that. But I, I, this is why I love Nehemiah. You're going to see a number of prayers are recorded in the book of Nehemiah. He, he was a great example of, a, of an intercessor, and he prayed. All right, any questions? One chapter down. Good. Let's move into chapter 2. Now remember, again, I, this is really important. Just I want to review this again. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 17 and following, Artaxerxes had shut down the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. This is the same Artaxerxes. Now, Nehemiah is going into and going to ask him again, and it's going, to, it's going to do it in a way that will get the king's attention. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, this would be March, April, 444 B.C. When wine was before him, which just reminds me, it's time for me to take a sip of coffee. My resolution, one of my resolutions is to drink more coffee in 2020. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm just kidding. It's to drink less coffee. But don't you agree, next to the Lord Jesus Christ and our wives, coffee's God's greatest gift. Amen to that? <laughs> Joe's yawning. He wouldn't agree with that. I should have some coffee. Yeah, that's what I mean. All right, I'm trying to bring a little levity to this tense situation. <laughs> when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king... Now, presumably he had done his job, tasted it. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? So, by the rhetorical question that the king is asking, Nehemiah must have always been a very positive, exuberant cupbearer, but not this time. And so Artaxerxes, who must have been a pretty good reader of people's body language, when I teach, I always watch people's body language, their eyes. And that's why I teach a class at, at another 
at Mammal Hall on UNO's campus on Sunday night. And it's big, it's way up, and people are sitting way up. I can't even, I'm not even sure it's a human being up there, but I think it is. <laughs> but I can't see their body, I, mean, I can't see their face. Because I, I like to do that, because I want to see if people are really connecting or if they're falling asleep. That's why I, I'm an expert marksman. If you fall asleep, I'm going to throw this at you. And I never miss. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So whatever, whatever the countenance of it's what we used to talk about, the countenance of one's face, who talks like that anymore? But the expression of your face, he noticed something. Nehemiah, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Because we have records of the king of Persia ordering the execution of someone who did not reflect the adoration and devotion to the king. You follow me? I mean, this is why he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of this. I mean, he doesn't want to be this way, but he's so overwhelmed by what his brother told him about the condition in Jerusalem. And the king says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should I not, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Don't pass over that lightly. This took an enormous amount of courage for Nehemiah to say this. Because, he, remember remember this, he is bringing up an issue that recorded for us in Ezra 4, King Artaxerxes had shut this down because he believed the lie of one of his advisors. These people are plotting rebellion against you by fortifying the city of Jerusalem. Shut it down. Okay, I'm shutting it down. So he is going to, he's talking about that same thing. So one, his countenance would have been serious in the presence of the king of Persia. And two, he is talking about something that reflects what the king earlier had stopped. So this takes a lot of courage for him to bring this up. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Does King Artaxerxes understand the issue? Yes. He knows that Nehemiah is a Jew. He knows that he is one of the members of the exile community that the Babylonians, whom the Persians had previously conquered, and he's now in his court, as a lot of the Jews of the exile were, he knows exactly what he's talking about. And so the king just fires back. What are you requesting? Now, before you talk to men, you talk to God. What does Nehemiah do? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Artaxerxes, give me a minute. I'm going to go over to the corner. I'm going to bow down. And I'm going to talk to God. That's not. This is what Bill Bright used to call a straight arrow prayer to God. Probably lasted about five seconds. And it probably went something like this. Lord, help me. Now, I made that up. It's not biblical. But I don't think... That's too far off, do you? But see, notice that again. What are you requesting? So before he answers the question, he talks to God. Did you ever do that? Amen. All of a sudden, a crisis develops. You're in your office or your place of work, and somebody comes up to you with a major issue. So before you respond to it, Lord, help me to have the right words. That's a straight hour prayer. You're, you're in a, an unexpected situation. Caught, catches you off guard. If he is your heavenly father and he loves you and he has your best interests at heart, you should talk to him before you talk to people. A straight hour prayer to God. I'm sure every one of you knows what I'm talking about. Every one of you has probably done that. I can't tell you the number of times in my life I've done that. Lord, help me. Give me the right words. And it's that kind of straight up. What does that reflect? Dependence on the Lord? An acknowledgement of who he is in comparison to who you are? An acknowledgement of his sovereignty and providence? And may I add an acknowledgement of his goodness? He's taking care of you. Rely on him. 
And I guarantee you, he will answer that prayer. He will give you the right words. He'll give you the right demeanor, the right way to respond, and whatever the situation is. And so I just, I think this is fantastic what Nehemiah is modeling for us here. Before he talks to the king, he talks to the king, capital K. Now the king's asking him a very penetrating question. What do you require? Whoa, I mean, this is not a simple question. So he shoots a straight out prayer to the Lord. Did I see a hand? I think I did. No? Okay. Verse? Yeah. So uh, it's also a statement of the position of a believer, uh, the way Nehemiah is put us, and, and it, it just fits. If you were, if your car uh, stopped running and, and you went to a stranger and said, can you help me? That's that's a whole other question. Whereas if, if you have a problem and you go to your parent and you say, Dad and mom, I'm not going to help with this. It's the two opposites. Yes. One assumes the vitality of a relationship that all exists. And the other, there is no relationship whatsoever. You know, you know. Your relationship with the Heavenly Father is a vital, intimate, robust one. Don't, don't, don't take it for advantage. He wants dependence. You're a co-heir with Yeah, he... he, he that's right. Jesus modeled that for us. So, I mean, it's just, this, you know, this is 444 B.C. That's a long time ago, but it's still relevant in 2019. This is a pattern for leadership. Leaders talk to God before they talk to people, even if it's straight-hour prayers in the midst of crisis. Hi, Rob. Glad you're here. Sorry you had to sit in the back. But that's the penalty for being late. I'm just kidding. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And that doesn't mean graves. That means rebuild Jerusalem. (laughs) I hope you know that. And the king said to me, and then Nehemiah adds something that he didn't have to, But he tells us the queen is sitting beside him. Who is the most famous queen of the Persian Empire? Esther. Esther. That's correct. Now, this isn't Esther. But I just wanted to remind you that the most famous queen of the Persian Empire was Esther. Now, we're we're a a generation later. But it's... um, so he's just telling us, which indicates, and this is a really important piece of information, indicates, because the queen wasn't, let me put it another way, rarely did the queen sit with the king. If you read the book of Esther, you see she, she it was really, it, it was really unusual for him to request, for her to request the presence of the king. But she does, she's very bold because of, of the situation for people with Haman's plot and all that stuff. So he's just telling us, I was before the king on a pretty important occasion because the queen's with him. We were dealing with some pretty important business. The queen was with him. And it's in that context that I ask him this question. The inference when you read the expositors and commentators and historians on this, the inference that's usually drawn is they were dealing with some pretty important questions in the court that day. And Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer, was always with the king and you know, to test the wine and so on. It's in that context that the king says, maybe there are other officials in the empire. It's a very important meeting. Nehemiah, your countenance, you're sad. What's going on? And Nehemiah, after shooting a straight out of prayer to God, said, well, it's understandable then because where my ancestors are from, the city is broken down. It's in devastation. And is there any reason why I'm not sad? Well, Nehemiah, what do you want? <laughs> and this was such an important meeting in the Queen's there. So he, was, he, he says this. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? What would you infer from that response? You can go. I just want to know when you're going to go and how long you're going to be there. So, I mean, it's just it's incredible. Okay, here's my question for you. 
The Proverbs say that God changes the heart of the king. The, God, the Bible says that God is sovereign. The Bible says that God's providence is real. Do you see that here? Had God been preparing the heart of King Artaxerxes for this? I mean, you know, we're asking a question that at one level it's impossible to answer, but at another level, with everything else the Bible teaches, in my view, God's hand is all over this thing. It's all over this. And so he says, yeah, I just want to know. I want to know when you're going, how long you're going to be gone. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. When I had given him the amount of time that I'm going to be gone. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's paid leave, by the way. No, I'm, I'm just... And the king said to me, uh, I already covered that, excuse me, verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. Now look at you know the initial map I gave you, the whole Persian Empire. This was one of the 120 provinces of the Persian Empire, which was a massive empire, the largest empire in the ancient world. And the province of beyond the river is the province in which Jerusalem is located. And there was a sub-province within that called Yehud. And that is where he's going. But I want to ask you this question. Why is he asking Artaxerxes for letters to the governor of the pr province beyond the river? Safe passage? Absolutely. Why else? To establish his credentials. But remember something I told you, I mentioned it twice. What is the historical background of this request? Artaxerxes had shut down the rebuilding of the wall a number of years earlier. It's quoted for us in Ezra 4. So Nehemiah must have proof, not only for safe passage, not only for his credentials, but also I have the authority of King Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This isn't my idea. This is my idea that's sanctioned by the king of the Persian Empire, and here are the letters to prove it. So Nehemiah's thinking. He's, he's being strategic in his thinking. Okay, I'm ready to go. No, no, i got to really think through this. If I am going to accomplish what God wants me to accomplish, I need the authority from the king of Persia to do this that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. By the way, Asaph is a Jewish name. So this is a Jewish individual who had authority over the king's forest. Because who owned all that land in the eastern Mediterranean? The king of Persia. But Nehemiah already knew the name of the official who was a Jewish man, of the official who controlled all the king's forest. By the way, I need a letter from him too. To him too. That may give me the timber. Now notice, he has not, Nehemiah's really getting specific here. I need authority to get the timber from Asaph, as his name, who's head of the king's forests. For what purposes? To make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple. If you look at this map here, which we're going to look at next week, but all these gates have to be rebuilt. They're totally destroyed. So he's got to be. He's got to have thick um, timber from the great cedars of Lebanon to rebuild this. This is the permanent touch structure. Second, for the wall of the city, the walls are totally destroyed. I'm going to rebuild the city, so I'm going to put the structure. It's going to be in a stone, but it's going to have framed with timber. And then thirdly, for the house that I shall occupy. My dad's house was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar burned it to the ground. As you're going to find out a little bit, a bit later, Artaxerxes is going to name Nehemiah governor of Yehu, and he needs a house to live in. So Nehemiah is saying, he's very specific. I also need a letter to Asaph, the head of the king's forest, to get the timber to do these three things. I mean, he's going from a, the countenance of a guy who's morose over the situation in Jerusalem to boldly asking the king, for letters to Asaph, because I'm going to need the timber to do all this. You with me, King Artaxerxes? 
Go for it. That's not, I made it up, but you know. And the crane granted me what I asked. Notice this statement. Because the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a great sentence of the sovereignty and providence of God. Nehemiah recognizes something. I'm asking the questions. I'm answering the king's questions. I'm making the requests. But whose superintending hand is over all of this? God. Did Nehemiah know his God? Yes. Did Nehemiah trust his God? Yes. Did Nehemiah represent his God well? Yes. He's an extraordinary leader. He's couched all this in prayer, but he also, with trust and confidence in God, he asks very bold requests. Just remember something. Not too many years earlier, Artaxerxes had shut down the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is asking to countermand that order and let him rebuild it. We have to infer two things here. Number one, that Artaxerxes really did trust Nehemiah. They had a relationship. He trusted him. And number two, he also, I really think this, he must have understood something about his spiritual life. Now, I don't mean that he took out a case of four spiritual laws and read it to Artaxerxes. I don't mean that. But he he understood something about the integrity of this man, Nehemiah. And it, you know the, the way in which the text reads, Artaxerxes doesn't say, okay, come back to me next week and I'll give you your answer. It's immediate. Okay, just tell me when you're leaving and tell me when you're coming back. Okay, here's what I need, king. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just really remarkable stuff. I don't, I'm trying to get you to exceed the excitement of this. This is an incredible, audacious, bold man because he trusts God. And he believes God has his best interests at heart. And he believes that he represents what God wants him to do, this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God to whom he prayed in chapter 1. Yeah, Fred. Uh, when Nehemiah laid out his requirements, the king could sense that some time had been spent in thinking through this as well, don't you think? And, and it gave additional respect for his request and honoring those requests? Oh, I think so too, absolutely. I mean, he saw that. Um, Nehemiah, in your words, had thought through this. He's got a strategic plan that's outlined. He knows exactly what he needs, even to the extent as I need a letter to Asaph, the head of the forest, so I can get the timber. He had thought this through. He's a strategic thinker. He's thought through. He has the conceptual drawings from the architect. I made that up, but I mean, he has you know he's he really has, and so you know. But again, I think Fred, there, there's a relationship between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah which exists. It has been going on for a while. And that relationship, and we don't know anything specifically about it, but that relationship is what caused him to, okay, I sense that he's a little sad and morose. What's going on, Nehemiah? I mean, that's the kind of relationship they have, which is really quite remarkable. Well, I just looked at what the Filipinos call the God on our wrists, so uh, I think I better quit. Usually you guys are shuffling papers and closing your Bibles, but Ed, I'm sorry. How much time was... When he shuts it down, we're going to go in the wind that Nehemiah takes off. How big of a span of time? It's, uh, it's almost 10 years. So he has a change of heart. Yes, I mean, this is significant. This is significant that he's asking, uh, that he's asking him, him, me, uh, Artaxerxes, yes, yeah. And I mean, t- he's countermanding an order. <laughs> Because, as uh, I'll talk about this much uh, in, in the next chapter, because the enemies of Nehemiah are going to say, you're plotting rebellion against the king, and we're going to tell him. That is exactly what caused Artaxerxes to shut it down earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be an appeal, and Nehemiah's going to say, oh no, 
The king knows what I'm doing. He knows, and trust me, here's the letters. That's really neat how this, I just, if you get the impression I like this book, it's really a good book. It teaches us so much about how we should live our lives. Because all of you are in positions of some kind of authority or have been. And uh, that's why often uh, Christian leaders will use Nehemiah as a framework for good strategies and leadership. So that's how we're going to be approaching it. Let me pray here because it's getting late. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for what he models for us, a strategic thinker, a planner. But, oh, my, utterly dependent on you. His straight arrow prayers are one of the great, great applications of this book. He is about to talk to the king. He shoots an arrow. He, he's asked a question by the king. He shoots an arrow. And, Lord, that is a model for us. Help us when we're in tense situations, difficult situations, not quite sure how to respond, not quite sure how to act, to shoot a prayer to you. You delight in that. You want us to talk to you like that. Help us to be men of faith, men of trust, and men of prayer. So we, we ask you to help us, to remind us constantly and continually of our dependence on you. And one of the elements of that dependence this continual talking to you about the things in our life. So, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. We go our separate ways now. We want to represent you well in our words and in our deeds. Help us to do that. In the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. See you next week.